Uh, again, yeah, we're so glad you're here. My name is Justin Hare, and this is my friend Brian McGreedy. Uh, and so what we do, kind of if this is your first time, we're thrilled that you're here. We give about a 20, 25 minute little conversation chat about different topics, and then we throw it open to anything you want to talk about. So you can text in absolutely anything. And who's going to do it tonight? Is Cole or Coleman? Colton? Who's going to, Colton's going to do it. All right. So Colton will monitor all the questions that come in. The way you can submit a question, you'll see these around the room tonight. Just this QR code. All you got to do is scan that. You can submit a question. If you see other questions you like, you can just like those. And the ones with the most likes go up to the top, and he'll start there. So. Uh, also, if you're not on our email list and you want to be in the loop on, you know, we do this every other Tuesday, so it can be kind of confusing. You're like, which week are we doing it, actually? So if you want to sign up for our emails, you can do that here at the bottom as well. But again, we're glad that you're here. This week, we uh, are talking about the idea of beauty, uh, curating things that are beautiful. And, you know, we, we've hit on goodness, truth, and beauty, those three transcendentals. Uh, would you t give us a little introduction into those three things, why they might be important? We, we tend to talk about them a good bit. Yeah, so the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness uh, are things that have been a part of the Christian faith from really the beginning. Um, they also are, if you're somebody who has studied philosophy, they are also rooted in Aristotle and Plato's work of trying to discover what's called natural law, and I'm not gonna go off on a whole thing about that. But really, uh, the transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness really came to the forefront of Christian thinking in the early Middle Ages. And Thomas Aquinas became probably the greatest proponent of the transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness. They're deeply rooted in scripture. They are very much a reflection of the character of God as reflected in the Trinity. And so, and they're all intimately connected with one another. Yeah, we were talking about that this week a little bit. Truth being uh, that which accords, I guess, with nature and goodness has to do a little bit with uh, the purpose for which it's made, it's telos. And then beauty, I think, is uh, has to do with the affections, it's something that stir, stirs up mm -hmm. the heart towards that which is good. So there is a lot of overlap, and we'll get into it, but... Uh, why would we spend tonight talking about the beauty, and, and what would you say is the role of beauty for the, a Christian? Well, I think beauty is one of those things that is greatly underappreciated in the church, particularly in our particular age. Um, if you're somebody who's a churchgoer, uh, I would ask you just to reflect for a minute, how many sermons have you ever heard on the topic of beauty? And probably, I would guess, most of you, it would not be very many. And yet, when you read the scriptures and you read about the character of God, beauty is one of the things that is talked about over and over and over again. And I think that so many of the things that are issues in our age, uh, issues of culture and issues of anxiety and um, temptation and all of that, that beauty has a major role to play and living what I would call a robustly Christian faith that's full of joy. And I think when we don't really appreciate the role of beauty or don't understand what beauty is, we miss out almost completely on the joy um, that there is in the Christian walk. Yeah. 
just uh, for me personally, beauty I, I was something I always knew, okay, that's important, that's good. You know, we talked about the scripture, Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is lovely or beautiful, uh, think about these things is what Paul says. And I knew that to be the case. I think for me, I went to a, a seminary where I learned a lot about the Bible. I learned how to teach the Bible. I learned all these facts, but it was my heart ultimately that I was struggling with, okay, the practices in my own life and, and what I actually was loving seemed to be, there seemed to be this gap between those and what I knew in my head. And I don't know if you've ever felt anything like that. And beauty was actually one of those things that bridged the gap for me. And uh, that, that I think is one of the key elements to, to the Christian life is this idea of beauty. And we were talking about you know, beauty we often think of as just an aesthetic, a visual thing. But as, as I was thinking this week, it really does have to do with all five senses. So one of the things I love to do is cook and obviously eating. Uh, and sliced pizza. Than, yeah, as in sliced <laughs> pizza, it was beautiful. Uh, but the idea of cooking good food, and uh, has anybody heard of Wendell Berry before? Yeah, Wendell Berry. So uh, there was this kind of new, or not so new, it's been a, a few decades, I guess, but this infatuation amidst like a consumeristic culture that you go to the supermarket, you have no idea where things came from. And he was all about getting tied back to the land, knowing where your food comes from. And that actually has an effect in how you live. And I noticed when I uh, was doing a little bit of gardening that the food actually tastes a lot better when I was doing that and grabbing it from there and then cooking it fresh. Uh, and there was, there was beauty to that. And there was some intangible kind of, this is right, this is good, this is enjoyable. And that was just one of the things that started to transform my affections, I think, but mm -hmm. we can go off on all the other different senses, but... Um, yeah. yeah, well, I think so much of that it's related to the idea of longing, yeah. and we all experience longing, and we experience, you know, there's a reason that when there's a beautiful sunset, and we are very blessed in Charleston that we have lots of those, that people are moved, that people stop, sometimes people will get out of their car and take a picture of it, because the beauty of it just speaks to your heart. And I think part of the reason for that is that one of the ways that God reveals himself and reveals his character, and scripture tells us this, is through creation. And we talked about this um, an earlier theology on tap, but that whole uh, psalm talking about the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament declares his handiwork and the fact that there's beauty in nature that should uh, if it's closely tied to wonder, which it should be, um, should point us back to how did this happen? Where did this come from? And as Christians, we see God as the source of all that, so it deeply enriches our devotional life. I think that's a key thing, is all beauty is ultimately created by God, and that's, that's huge. So everything that is beautiful is tapping into something, just a dim shadow of what we see in God himself as the author of life and goodness and, and beauty. And I think this is one of the reasons Charleston's probably blowing up as it is, is because <laughs> there's there's beauty all over the place, mm -hmm. not just in nature, but but also architecture. I mean, that was one of the things uh, you've, you've really got a passion for. Yes, so I could go on and on about that, which I will not tonight. But <laughs> suffice to say, one of the things that is, I'm very confident, one of the reasons people are drawn to Charleston is that architecture up uh, through the time period that most of what was in the historic district of Charleston 
was built was based on classical principles of design. And most of those principles of design are deeply rooted in a mathematical order. And I want to just do a quick book club, um, Beauty for Truth's Sake. Um, you see this Nautilus shell on the front. Some of y'all, does anybody know what the Fibonacci sequence is? Yes. All right, yay, I'm glad a few of you do. Um, if you don't know about the Fibonacci sequence, go home and Google it. It is one of those things that people have not really heard about, but I think is such a huge proof of the existence of God that there is this design and these ratios that are all through the created order. And our hearts and our souls respond to things that are made in those kinds of ways. And so the architecture in Charleston is built in human scale um, where it makes you, it gives you a sense of well-being. And the interesting thing is people use architecture for um, ideology. Anybody who has spent, has anybody been to Milan? All right, if you've been to Milan and you've seen um, the train station and some of the rest of Mussolini's architecture, there's actually a type of fascist, brutalist architecture that is designed to make you feel insignificant. And uh, it used to be that architecture was designed in such a way to elevate your soul. And it's not an accident that you would go into libraries and that they would have high vaulted ceilings. Churches would have high vaulted ceilings. Government buildings would have high vaulted ceilings because of the idea that there is truth that is coming from the heavens. And there's a great uh, picture that a friend of ours sent us that showed the, the old and new libraries at Berkeley in California. And the old library looks like it could be in Charleston. It's magnificent with columns and big arches and a huge tall ceiling. And then the new library is what I call Soviet pancake architecture. Um, it looks like a parking deck um, that has HVAC in it. You know, and you think about which one of those is more ennobling to the spirit and gives you a sense of well-being. Um, and it clearly is not the one that looks like a parking deck. Yeah. Yeah, right. I wonder which one you could study better. And yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. Everybody was drawn to the beautiful. Yeah, why? Why could yeah. that be? Hmm. Well, so you've done a class on C.S. Lewis uh, recently on the abolition of man, and now um, his novel, which is parallel to that, the uh, that hideous strength. Mm -hmm. And you've talked a lot about this that beauty actually has an objective value to that. And, and we probably should just go ahead and say that this is going to sound strange in a culture that says beauty's in the eye of the beholder. That's postmodernism to a T, and that's where we are. So it's going to sound probably very odd to hear some of what we're talking tonight about. But how would you explain that is beauty as objective value? Yeah, that's, I think that's a great point. That's the, the main point that Lewis tries to make in Abolition of Man, is that there is such a thing as objective value. And it used to be that the purpose of education was to expose you to things that were beautiful and to train you to love and to understand what was beautiful. And the idea is that there is an objective side of that that's rooted in this kind of design um, that's mathematical and um, otherwise, and that there is a sense of wonder that is related to that. And so that there are some things that are beautiful and there are some things that are ugly. And the problem in our culture is that we have thrown out that, we have changed the definition of beauty very subtly, and a lot of people don't even realize that this has happened. 
where we now think that beauty equals self-expression, mm -hmm. that any kind of self-expression is beautiful. And there may be beautiful forms of self-expression, but there may also be forms of self-expression that are not beautiful. And one of the, the anecdotes that I told when we started uh, this particular class um, about what's happened in the art world with objective beauty is that, and this is a true story, um, I think about two years ago, um, outside Milan, I'm really not picking on Milan. Um, <laughs> I love Milan, the opera house is gorgeous, the cathedral's gorgeous. Uh, but in Milan, they were having a very um, shishi art opening at the big art museum there. And they had an internationally renowned artist who had put in a special installation for this particular um, exhibit. And it was a black tie opening, you know, it cost over $1,000 for a ticket to come and you'd be the first people to see this new artwork. And so um, it sold out, you know, like in 24 hours and lots of people came and it was written up and everything. And the next morning when it was to open to the public and they'd sold all of these tickets, um, the curator came in and he was just aghast. He was like, where has the art exhibit gone? And <laughs> what had happened is when they had had the party the night before, the cleaning crew came in and they thought the art exhibit was part of the trash from the party and they threw the whole thing out, the entire thing. And so uh, it was gone. And the other thing related to that is there was, I think this was in the Netherlands, there was a grant that was made by the government for pandemic related art that we needed to express ourselves about how we feel about the pandemic in an artistic form. And so this well-known artist had won the commission that had a $75,000 prize. And so he had gotten the check for the prize and they had this big event with the press to um, unveil this new work of art that was expressing what we all feel about the pandemic. And so they had you know, the frame and then like the cloak over it and everything. So they pull the cloak off and it's an empty frame with a post-it note on it that says, take the money and run. That was the art. Now, contrast that to what you would see at the Louvre or the Musée d'Orsay. It's a very different understanding of what art and beauty are. Yeah, I think those are so funny. Uh, you know, I, obviously authenticity is a good thing and we, we would be for that. Uh, but if there is a God, if there is uh, a purpose for which he's created the world and human beings, then just any self-expression is not guaranteed to be a good thing. And that's where we would say authenticity is good when it's in accords with that which is true and good and, and, and beautiful. Uh, it's one of the things that personally, you know, I, I, a little bit of my story, I grew up in the Episcopal Church and hated it. We've had a question along these lines, like Anglicanism is very weird to a lot of people, but they tend to be coming to a place like St. Philip's, so they don't really know why, which is fascinating, but it's because I think beautiful, and that's one of the mm -hmm. reasons they do. But uh, So I went to a Baptist church, and um, also in college, and then was in a Presbyterian seminary, but it was Anglican worship that really started to appeal to me because it was all about beauty. I mean, literary beauty. Yes, they, they had the same prayers and that sort of thing, but I noticed in other traditions too, like, um, often my prayers would be very similar and they would start to repeat and they weren't nearly as beautiful as some of these prayers that have been throughout the centuries. Mm -hmm. And so literary beauty is one of these things in Anglicanism that really drew me to it. 
uh, obviously uh, music and, and actual visual aesthetic beauty uh, was one of the big differences between Presbyterianism and the seminary that I went to. So, yeah, Anglicanism, at least in the English Reformation, was all about the affections and beauty. And that was because they, they knew that if we could capture the affections, if we can change your loves by that which is beautiful and you're drawn to it, as you said, then ultimately your will is going to follow that and your mind is going to follow that as well. So there's one of the big phrases of the Reformation was whatever the will loves, the or sorry, what the, um, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And I think that's spot on. And so beauty for me personally was all about learning to change the heart uh, and, and the Anglican Reformation history was all about. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of us, we've lost the vocabulary to understand that. Um, one of the things I would love to do, anytime any of you have extra time, if you have 30 minutes and want to get a tour of St. Philip's where we explain what's going on with the architecture, because there's a reason that it moves your heart when you go in there. We don't have the vocabulary, most of us, to talk about that. But when you have it opened up to you, it is like the most amazing thing in the world. So um, I think that that whole idea of beauty and worship, that beauty is integrally related to the kingdom of God. And I think that's one of the areas where those of us who are Christians really very often short circuit ourselves because instead of doing what Philippians 4 says, of think on these things, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. That's not what we think about. We are discipled by Fox News or CNN. Um, we are um, filling our thoughts with what's out on social media and we're not choosing or curating what we're putting into our minds. And then we wonder why we're filled with anxiety and despair. And it's not an accident that in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about, do not worry, he says, consider the birds of the air. And he's talking about looking at birds, thinking about the wonder of flight, the beauty of their plumage, the fact that they are exquisite. Um, and then he says, consider the lilies of the field. And you know, it's all about considering taking in beauty. And most of us don't allow any time for that. Um, that's not where our eyes or our hearts or our ears are focused. What we listen to, what we see, what we think about matters. And when we begin to pour in the kinds of things that Paul is talking about in that passage, it will transform our lives. And if you're dealing with like a problem or a temptation or something like that, going to something that you know is beautiful, that has moved your heart, um, makes a huge difference. And I want to just, um, I only have one Tolkien quote, which is great restraint for me. Um, but just listen to this and think about what this says about beauty. This is from The Return of the King. Sam and Frodo are in the worst part of Mordor, trying to get the ring to Mount Doom. They're about to give up hope. They're exhausted. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tour, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken lands and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. 
And I think that is so absolutely true of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is there and full of beauty and truth and goodness. And we miss it because we're focusing on the clouds and not on the stars. That's good. I think, too, oftentimes we in the church or in Christians can have kind of a negative thought about beauty as if, uh, because it can lead to temptation. You know, this idea of, uh, well, beauty must be bad because the world tends to be hedonistic, like just since this is all there is, we just need to go after as much uh, sensory beauty or pleasure or aesthetic beauty as we can, because that's all there is. And so the church has in times, I think, really resisted things of beauty to their own detriment. Mm -hmm. And I love, again, the historic church, they balanced this with the notion of feasting. We have Mm -hmm. feast days in the church, and we have fasts yes. as yep. well, and it's both of those. Like we were made. I love what um, Justin Whitmore early says in this book, The Common Rule, that we were made to feast. Mm-hmm. But because of the fall, because there's sin in the world, because the good creation that God has made has been perverted and twisted, uh, we long to fill our emptiness up with the things of the world, and so that's why we resist. We we uh, sorry, we fast mm-hmm. sometimes so that we don't feast all the time, but it, it's that balance in this life that's so important because ultimately in heaven, when there is no sin, we will be feasting forever right. on God and, and the goodness of his creation without any sort of twisting it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and, you know, this is one of the things, like, for example, you talked about uh, if you want to experience change in your life, if there's an area of your life that you're experiencing temptation or struggle and you're wondering, I'm, I, how do I actually turn from this and grow in it and change. Um, One of the areas I deal with college students and and young adults in the area of um, sexual sin, so unwanted sexual behavior. This is a book up here. I I found it to be one of the best books on it. He says the only way to really change is to actually not just try to stop what you're doing, but to fill your heart with that which is really more beautiful and more true and and better, you know. And so um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to give a few of my thoughts here is what are some practical ways that people can grow in appreciating and curating beauty um go ahead and answer that and then i'm going to share kind of what he says here i guess um well i think there are a lot of ways but i think one of the best ways is to slow down and to deliberately try to see beauty um especially when you live somewhere like charleston um that's not hard to do we don't live in a concrete jungle here um so uh if you walk walk somewhere along the water and light, I think, is very related to beauty. Watch the light on the water. Just stop and watch the light on the water. Watch the light on leaves. Look at flowers. Look at trees and the way they grow. Um, all of those kinds of things are a way of opening your heart. I would pray that God would open your heart to see the beauty that's around you. Um, I think that is one really important way. I think another thing to do is to read and listen to things that are beautiful. Uh, you know already I'm a big fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, but The Silver Chair is a great book to kind of awaken you a little bit to beauty. Um, the Magician's Nephew is another one. The scene in The Magician's Nephew where Aslan the Great Lion is singing Narnia into creation um, if you have a heart, it will make you cry when you read it. It's so beautiful. But we need to wake our hearts up to beauty. And so um, doing that listening, I love to listen to really excellent choral music. 
Um, King's College Cambridge is a great place to go on YouTube or on Spotify um, to hear some amazing um, choral music that will help awaken your heart uh, to beauty. It's like if you have something that's rusty doorknob, um, you can't like immediately just open it. You need to start working on it, massaging it, loosening it up. And those are some ways to begin to start training your heart. That's a, yeah, that's a really good image. And um, I love it. So I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids at night. And I'll be honest, the last few years have been on the drier side spiritually for me. And um, I naturally love reading theology. I love uh, ordering theology and, and basically um, providing, like seeing things and systems and all that. And, and that's good. I think that's important. You need that. God himself orders the world. But coupling that with fiction as well, it sounds so silly, but like reading the Chronicles of Narnia has made me weep almost every night. And I love what Lewis said about that. He's like, you know, a good children's story ought to be read at any stage in life. And, and I think you might have said it gets better as you That's get older. Right. Yeah. Um, here are some other ways that I found. I mean, this is, keep in mind, this is a guy who's uh, trying to help those who are, uh, have unwanted sexual behavior. And these are some, he's basically saying, curate beauty in your life. And here are some practical ways. He says, uh, buy an excellent pair of headphones. Like, that just struck me as, I, I would never have thought, if you're dealing with sexual sin, buy an excellent pair of headphones. But to enjoy that which is truly beautiful, to, to hear music the way it was intended to be. Um, another one he says is, get at least seven and a half hours of sleep. Like, your body was made to actually not be going all the time. You need, you need sleep. Uh, another one that I thought, I'll just read this whole thing here. Visit a national park. Spend a day in your city's art museum. Spend intentional time bringing healthy relaxation and sensuality in your life, healthy sensuality in your life. And if you have the financial means, schedule six spa treatments in the next 12 months. If possible, pay for them now and put the appointments on your calendar so you have no valid excuse not to go. The point is to put your body before that which is beautiful is what he says. So I would have, I've never heard anything like counsel like that, but he's onto something. It's that we're holistic beings. And we actually have to take consideration of that which uh, we were made for. We're made for sleep. We're made for enjoying, but in, made for enjoying that which is truly beautiful. Well, and I think the other aspect is that is part of what it means to live and to being made in the image of God and being human. And we live in a culture that is more and more reductionist and wants to see you as just a cog. You're just that person that does those things at your office or your job that are necessary. And if you leave, they'll get someone else to do that. And yet we spend all of our energy and time, many of us, in our work, and there isn't anything left over. And so feeding our souls is unbelievably important. I want to give a movie plug, too. There's a great movie um, by a brilliant director named Terrence Malick, and the movie is called A Hidden Life. And it is a profoundly beautiful movie. And one of the things that's interesting about it is now in filmmaking, camera angles and cameras move really, really quickly. And in this movie, everything is deliberately slow. And so you watch the sheaves of wheat blowing in the wind with the light on them. And it's like through that, the whole movie. And it is, it is profoundly moving as a meditation on beauty. So I would recommend that as well. Yeah, I, so going back, I don't have the money to do six spa treatments and book that right now, actually. But like, if you do have just less time, less money, what are some ways you could do it? 
surprisingly enough, I've actually tried to light a candle every single day. Mm -hmm. That doesn't cost much money, but even something as simple as that, seeing um, candle, like as you eat a meal, A, just eat a meal with other people, uh, that's not that difficult. Uh, you can schedule that, but, but do that with natural beauty. And um, smell is such a huge, and we were talking about this, where it has probably the biggest um, impact on your memory right. and kind of your entire personhood. And so having that like beautiful smells actually as well is, is really important. And that's been something that has enriched my soul in the mm -hmm. last few months as I've done that. But any last thoughts before we go to, uh, how are we doing on questions actually? We're good. Oh, we're good, okay. okay. So final thoughts, Brian. Yeah, I would say one last thought is that if you're a Christian and you are going to church, one of the ways to begin to live into this is to not uh, arrive at church in what I would call the state of routine panic that most of us are trying to get there and get seated before it starts, um, but to allow time to be able to come in and be deliberate and to focus. Um, if you're at a church like St. Philip's where there's a beautiful choral introit before the service where you can focus on listening to that music and contemplating the words that are in the service leaflet or even looking at the flowers on the altar or the candles, all of those kinds of things and settling and focusing, um, that's a way of tuning your heart to beauty as you begin to worship um, that is really important. And I think just generally that's true in a lot of different areas that if we allow ourselves a little margin to try to appreciate beauty, it can make all the difference. Margin is key in anything to, to actually appreciate beauty. You have yeah. to schedule the time to, to do that, but it's worth it. All right, Colton. So if everyone could take 30 seconds to just peek at the questions, like what they are, what like what they want to be asked, we'll get started. I know one of the things that Brian had shared with me in the past when suggesting things to do to people visiting Charleston was to um, just wander around some of the little side streets south of Broad um, and you get to see some beautiful gardens and, and homes and especially in the spring if you have a Saturday or Sunday afternoon when everything's coming into bloom um, it's really quite incredible. I don't get over that. That's just, I, I grew up here and I still do that all the time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Good word, Colton. So the first question, how do we keep beauty from becoming the end-all, be-all, thinking of the harmful effects of social media on our generation and a secular view of beauty? That is an excellent question. I think one of the, one of the things we didn't really talk about is the whole idea of physical beauty and the beauty of the human body, the human face, all of that, and the idea of a, a social construct about what makes a person beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that, is a, that is a whole different thing than the type of beauty that we are talking about. And one of the interesting things is that social construct about what is considered beautiful in terms of a body or a face has changed dramatically over time. Even in my lifetime, that's changed back and forth several ways, but I would say one of the best ways in dealing with physical beauty is to think about that every person, every person reflects the image of God. And there is beauty in every person. Mm -hmm. um, 
even what our culture might not say is somebody who's conventionally beautiful. But there's a, there's a great um, Lewis quotation, of course there's always a great Lewis quotation, <laughs> um, that talks about beauty and he's talking about, it's from an essay that's called Meditation in a Tool Shed. And the image he uses is that you're in this dark shed that's made of boards and the sun comes up and it's shining through the chinks between the boards and he says you can look at that shaft of light and if you look at the light you can see the little dust motes in it and you can see that it's brighter than the darkness um, or you can look down at the floor of the shed and see what the light is illuminating but he said as Christians one of the things we want to try to do when we see beauty is to train ourselves to look back up the beam of light that whatever is being illuminated is beautiful to look back up at and think about what must be the creator's qualities who could create this kind of beauty and turn it into praise rather than worship of the object. Um, the quotation is much better than what I just said, but that's the, that's the, the gist of it. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is what the question was getting at, but just to go along with that, I, I think because there has been the... I guess triumph of the erotic in our culture too. The idea of sexual love is the only kind of love almost. And we've talked about that too. There's uh, familial love, there's friendship, and these things are so undervalued today. And you can't, and so obviously physical appearances and people, that's, that's a good thing and it's fine, but you can't just divorce somebody's soul and body because a human being in the image of God is both soul and body. And so uh, it's not primarily erotic love that is the only thing, which is what our world says mm -hmm. today. Um, that, that is beautiful. There's all sorts of other beauty tied to the different forms of love. Yeah. So if we missed the point of that, find yeah. us afterwards and we'll try again. Is God as beautiful in the slums as he is in downtown historic Charleston? Yes. Mm -hmm. Perhaps even more so. Mm -hmm. um, I would say one of the things that has been a, a great blessing in my life is I've been able to spend time in a lot of different places and in some places that were very deeply impoverished, um, one of those being in the poorest part of Haiti, which is the poorest country um, in the world by most standards, and seeing the amount of beauty that there was, and you know, we're on this island that used to be a penal colony um, that doesn't have water, um, that people don't have work, uh, it's sort of subsistence farming. But seeing the beauty that was there and the faith that those people had and their concept of the beauty of God, and we have a sister church there um, where it's very, very plain, um, but they have done all they can to try to make it beautiful. And I remember um, going to a worship service there that was three and a half hours long when it was 99 degrees outside and there's no air conditioning or fan or anything and it was one of the most extraordinarily beautiful things I've ever participated in in my life. So. Yeah, it's, this is where I think the wisdom of fasting in the church is so important because you have... Um, throughout history, civilizations that are ornate and lavish and rich. I mean, you think about the rich young ruler who couldn't follow God because all of these things are such a powerful pull on them when we seek to use them 
to be a, as an end in themselves as opposed to pointing us to God as a reflection of him. And so often, as Brian said, in the poorest places of the world, that which are beset by sin, uh, God still shows up in those places. And the idea of contentment is so ingratitude. In mm-hmm. the places mm-hmm. that I've been, that have been third world, uh, it, it just would put to shame those of us uh, that are here that are in the top 0.1% of the world ever in comfort and, and money, that sort of thing. And so, um, yeah, God does show up and he's still beautiful, but the end of beauty is ultimately to find it not in itself, but in God. Right, yeah. Great question. Do you, do you think television and incessant visual stimulation has it hardened our hearts and calloused our eyes to beauty? Is it wise to periodically fast from that? I could have made that a question because that is like That's a one of my, my soapboxes. <laughs> um, absolutely. I think we are um, conditioned by our media consumption and it really does create a callous on our hearts and on our eyes. And what we're told by the media is beautiful is very often not beautiful. And um, the other thing is that it steals our leisure time and our energy so that we don't have energy left to really experience wonder. I mean, going outside for 10 minutes versus watching um, television, um, yeah. That, um, there are some things on television that are good, but the vast majority of what's out there, I think, is just a waste of time. And it is, it's sort of the path of least resistance. And it's easy to fall into, but that's why I think having some of the the practices of beauty of, of like making choices to proactively invest in some of those things that you were reading out of that book um, can help deal with that. And uh, yeah, the other problem with television is that it's full of, if you look in Galatians 5 and you look at um, what's called the works of the flesh versus the works of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The works of the flesh are like debauchery, factions, rage, anger, sexual immorality. Um, Which one of those is TV full of? Um, It's not the love, joy, peace one. And so I think that um, it can be something that numbs us to beauty. Whoever asked this question, and anybody who finds it interesting, I, I can't recommend enough going and reading. It's a very, very short book. Andy Crouch's TechWise Family. Don't be thrown off by TechWise Family. It is chock full of wisdom. And one of the things I love in there, he's saying that, I mean, media, whether it's social media or TV or whatever, it's, it's consuming. You, it, like, we consume it. And he says that being made in the image of God, we were made to create more than we were to consume. And that is one of those things that just, it's so subtle. And I see it in my own children, I see it in my own life, the addiction to to it all. And uh, the things, you know, if you just, he gives this analogy of, you know, musical instruments, like generations before, they learned the skill of doing these things. And so many today, including myself, we don't have that much ability to do that, which brought joy and, and beauty to the, the world in history. Mm-hmm. So TechWise Family by Andy Crouch, highly recommend. It's really but short. fasting from uh, media, fasting from your phone, all of those kinds of things, those are 
great disciplines that help in the area, not just of beauty, but of your spiritual life in general. What is your opinion on giving cash to homeless people that you know will spend it on drugs and alcohol? <laughs> Yeah. That is another really great question. I don't think there's really a good answer to that. Um, I think that for me personally, there are some times when I do and sometimes when I don't. And I try to pray into it. Um, I think sometimes you can tell whether a person is sincere. Um, but, I mean, you never really know what they're going to do with it. I think you don't want to give a lot of money one of the things that is often, if you have time and are situated where you can go and buy them a meal um, and give it to them, um, which I've been able to do that on King Street a couple of times because you're right there with restaurants and whatnot, that can be a good thing to do. But, you know, <laughs> there's a great anecdote about that where uh, Lewis and Tolkien were coming out of a pub in Oxford and there's a homeless man outside the pub who's like, you know, please give me some money um, for food. And so Lewis gave him like a pound and Tolkien or whoever, I don't think it was Tolkien, some other guy, um, said, why did you do that? You know, he's just going to spend it on drink. And Lewis was like, well, if I'd kept it, that's what I'd spend it on too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, who am I to judge? Um, so, you know, you don't want to be irresponsible, um, but I do think that sometimes you may feel led to do that. Other times you may feel led not to. One of the things I've tried to do is, like, particularly, I mean, I come over the bridge and always right there, there's that the group of folks that are always there. And so having bottle, like, just buying a big thing for two bucks, you can buy, like, a ton of bottles of water or, like, packs of crackers, you know, and that is an easy way um, to where you, you can give, I think, in good conscience. But I, I'm, I'm like you in the same way. Sometimes I have and sometimes I haven't. I don't know if there's an answer to it. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be great. I can see this one. Are the rats and the couches at Henry's part of the beauty God has created in the world? I don't know what you're talking about. Next question. <laughs> What's the most beautiful thing in the world to you? Oh, wow. I, I would, that's a very difficult question, but off the top of my head, I would say one of the most beautiful things that really resonates with my heart and soul is the sky, whether it be at sunset or whether it be the night sky with stars. And I think part of the reason that that resonates with me is that it's what one writer has called profligate beauty, beauty that is not necessary, that there's no evolutionary or biological function where those things need to be beautiful but they are, and they're spectacularly beautiful. And I think I might have quoted in here the thing from, um, I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was not a Christian and not someone you would think would say things like this, but he said, if the, if the night sky with all of the stars, if that only happened once every hundred years instead of every single night, then on the night that it happened, the entire world would stop and fall to its knees and wonder and awe and praise. But because it happens night after night, we're just like, oh yeah. So to me, I would say the sky, um, either sunset or night sky. What about you? I don't know how to answer this question. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. Uh, I love words. Um, 
And so I'll be honest, I just the message of the gospel is probably it, it, the most beautiful thing in the world. It sounds cliche, but the fact that I'm far worse than I ever imagined, yet more loved than I ever dare hope. Mm -hmm. uh, every movie that's good has that theme in it. You know, every song that's good has something along those lines. And so uh, I love the way people tell that story in different ways mm -hmm. that capture the, uh, you know, Psalm 51 when David is confessing his sin about, and, um, he says, restore to me the joy of salvation. Yeah. And that's been a prayer in my life of that when that, when I heard that and felt that for the first time, uh, I, I would love to experience that again and, and again and again. Mm -hmm. And there are stories, there's um, words that people have used that, that capture that restoration of salvation again. And it's that joy-beauty linkage yeah. again. Yeah. Do you have any local spa recommendations? <laughs> <laughs> the cheap ones, whatever those are, I don't know. Uh, what's, um, we don't actually frequent spas. I'm I, sure that's a, so, a surprise to y'all. So my wife got one at uh, Woodhouse Spa. I know that's a place. I think that was expensive, though, because she got it as a gift. I didn't. Uh, Urban Nirvana's a place. I know that does something. I don't know. That's, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> we are incompetent to answer that question. Yeah. So sorry. Is beauty more tempting than truth? If so, why? More tempting? Yeah, I, don't, I, don't I would quite, love to follow up. I quite know that. how to interpret that. Um, tempting to what? So, I mean, maybe, maybe beauty, perhaps it means could you more easily be led astray by pursuing beauty than by pursuing truth? Perhaps. Um, I think particularly in our culture because we have such a misunderstanding of that. But I think we also have a major misunderstanding of truth. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the speak your truth is a real cultural mantra right now and that everybody has their own truth, um, which is completely contrary to the scriptural revelation that there are there are absolutes that are true, that God is the source of all truth. And that doesn't mean your experience is not important, but that the truth of God trumps that. So. Yeah. yeah, I could say more on that, but I'm not. <laughs> so I think that's good. How do you respond to those saying there is a crisis of beauty in the church? I would agree with them. Uh, I think that in much of the church, we have undervalued beauty and we've been suspicious of it. And particularly in the Protestant church, that has been true. And we have thrown out um, the baby with the bathwater, if you will, um, where really part of our heritage as Christians is a very high view of beauty. Um, and that even is rooted deeply in the Old Testament. There's a very high view of beauty and beauty and worship, um, particularly in the Old Testament, um, described in the way the temple is built, um, described in the way um, that God is to be worshiped, all those kinds of things. And I think that we, um, in a misunderstanding uh, of what it means to be holy, we have, we have made it seem that holiness and beauty are mutually exclusive, which is why I love 
the tagline um, that we use sometimes um, at St. Fellows, where we say worship of the beauty of holiness. And I think that sort of captures all of it. What would you say about that? Yeah, I'd agree. I think that and that's one of the things I experienced. Again, going back to the whole authenticity thing where we prize individual authenticity over uh, lots of things, particularly corporate participation. And that's one of the things that is so sad to me about what's happened in COVID. And obviously in a, in a pandemic, there's measures that need to be taken, but it's something that the church is even in more of a crisis when you have, you can't, and you can't participate with others in worship through a screen when you can't actually embody that sort of yeah. thing. So I think that's only going to be exacerbated by more and more people tuning in online. And so the, the idea of beauty being something we behold together and we do, uh, that is something, in all honesty, I mean, I'm not Catholic, but I think the Catholics do get this really well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say if you've never been to a Christmas Eve service at St. Philip's, um, do that sometime regardless of what your belief system is. Um, because that is a, a service that I think more than any other one during the year embodies beauty. And it is, it's an experience not just of what um, has been made to happen, but everyone's investment in what is happening together um, is what makes it so extraordinary. One last one. Rank your top three favorite albums of all time. Albums? Oh, goodness. This may be harder for you than it is for me. Uh, yes, because I'm so much older than you are. So. <laughs> and you know more than I do. Uh, I don't know about that. <sighs> Joshua Tree's got to Yeah, Joshua favorite. Tree is definitely my top one. You too, Joshua Tree. Um, Probably followed by R.E.M.'s Life's Rich Pageant. Um, maybe followed by the Beatles' Let It Be. Something like that. I, I don't know albums enough to do this. It's really sad. They I, didn't have albums when you were I just listened to Spotify. <laughs> I guess I don't know. Maybe that's, uh, I, I know it's deconstructing that, beauty again. That's right, yeah. So... Good ones. Those are the ones I like. <laughs> yeah, if you want to know more about albums, talk to me, not Justin. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys. I, uh, I think that's probably all we have. Next week, or not next week, because we do it every two weeks, uh, we'll be back, and we're probably going to be doing all the ones, the, all the questions, questions that we, we haven't gotten to. didn't get to over the last like four or five weeks or four or five sessions, and so there's a lot of them. Uh, even from the last time we did that, we've got a lot of them. Yep. So, anyways, we're so glad you're here. Feel free to hang out. As always, uh, drink up and tip well. We're so thankful for the guys at Henry's and Clark over there is amazing. Um, so we're just really grateful for this opportunity. Grateful you're here, and we look forward to next time. So thanks. And before you go, so, try to meet somebody that you haven't met, and feel free to check out these books up here. Yeah. All right. Thanks oh, for whoa, coming. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But, oh, I meant to do this too. So if you're a guy, sorry, this is going to be very sexist, but like if you're a guy, oh yeah, there's going to be Tomorrow. a great speaker. Yes, you should come. You should come, Clark. Tomorrow at lunch, there's going to be the speaker at Star Gospel Mission. Or Star Gospel Mission, he's going to be speaking at St. Philip's. Uh, he's an amazing, dynamic yes. speaker. Monthly men's lunch, twelve to one. Um, Dr. Marion Platt, uh, who is a fascinating, unbelievable guy, who for eighteen years was um, on the front lines of ministry with the Salvation Army all over the place, and has recently become the director of Star Gospel Mission. 
uh, brilliant, passionate about Jesus, um, come hear a story if you're a guy. Yeah. 12 o'clock tomorrow, you should come. That'd be great. Well, you will also get a great meal from this time. That is true. So, awesome. Thank you, guys. All right. Thanks for coming. <laughs>